Hey folks, my name's Andy Sitto. I'm a singer, songwriter, producer, performer, podcaster, living in Denver, Colorado. My guest this week is Cedar Edge, Colorado-based recording artist, singer, and songwriter, David Starr. You're listening to another episode of Middle Class Rockstar. Happy New Year. Happy 2023. We hope that there are no pandemics this year. We hope that people are nice to each other this year. And um, I don't know. I don't know what else. What else can you ask for? That you uh, achieve the ultimate happiness in all of your goals. I don't know. But Happy New Year. I hope you had a great holiday. And uh, welcome back. And thanks for listening again. My guest today is David Starr, who I first uh, started hearing about through some mutual friends and on Facebook. Uh, He did an album called Touchstones, where he released a single every single month, and then the full album followed at the end of 2021. He had one original on there, but the rest was cover songs. And some songs that I uh, that I really love the original versions of, such as Feels Like Rain, Angel from Montgomery. We chat more about it in the podcast, but um, that's how I... He he first, you know, ended up on my radar, and then my buddy Chris K, um, who's been on the podcast a couple times, and he a lot of times shares my podcast on his show, the Colorado Playlist, um, which is broadcast on FM stations across the state. Uh, he started talking to me about David too, and playing me some of his uh, songs, and saying, "Hey, you should have this guy on on the podcast." Um, well, then this year, or sorry, last year, twenty twenty two, I see that he's playing some shows with Susan Gibson and Jackson Emmer. And Jackson is a buddy of mine. We met um, earlier this year. We were sharing a VRBO playing the Yellowstone Songwriter Festival up in Cody, Wyoming. Anyway, I just thought, well, you know, I should I should uh, get David on the podcast or at least ask. And he said yes, and it was a great conversation. He lives in Cedar Edge, Colorado, where he has owned and operated a guitar shop, Stars Guitars, S-T-A-R-R, of course, uh, since the early 2000s. It's been over 20 years now. A um, couple very quick things. I want to say thanks to our sponsor, Narrator Music. Uh, for simple and affordable licensing for sync, visit narratormusic.com. Uh, I've also just opened... Uh, this podcast up for a couple new sponsors if you're interested in becoming a sponsor it's pretty affordable it's pretty straightforward we can work up a pitch that i'll say um, in every episode shoot me an email at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com also if you'd like to support this podcast in a monetary way i'm on patreon at patreon.com slash Andy Sido, S-Y-D-O-W. I put out a lot of my own music early, or I even have a couple songs that I've only put out there. Um, I uh, I just did a a record with a string quartet and a French horn, and I'm going to be putting up clips from that and actually sharing the score, sharing the music and talking about why I uh, put certain instruments where I did and how I did the arrangements and stuff. so if you're interested in that, patreon.com slash Andy Sitto. Also, if you'd like to support in a non-monetary way, um, give this podcast a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast. It just takes a second, and it's a huge help, and I'd appreciate it very much. All right, let's do the show, my conversation with David Starr. Mm-hmm. 
David Starr, thanks for taking the time to chat with me. Thanks for having me. And you are you have the coolest background, I think, in the last 107 episodes or so for the interview. If you most people are are just listening and not watching, but if you're watching on uh, on YouTube or wherever, um, you're sitting in the back of your guitar shop in the repair room. It sort of looks like I don't know. It kind of looks like a a really bad windstorm went through somebody's garage, and this is what you found in the morning. But you know, there's some wires hanging up there that I can't bear to throw away. Musicians and gear people know you you can't throw a wire away because you might need it, right? Yeah, right. That one that one cable. Uh, I finally threw away all my SCSI cables. Those aren't coming back. Um, you know, for printers and whatnot. And then I got guitar cases over here. So this is not the very uh, exciting, romantic part of the guitar store, but it's where stuff gets done. When you say SCSI, are you uh, referring to cables that don't work, or is or, no? There was a there was a protocol, SCSI, so they called it SCSI, and I don't remember what that stood for, but it was this great big cable that had these little clamps on the end of it, and it, it you, you early on 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 computers, it was they've probably been out of favor for twenty plus years, so doesn't matter but it's it's it took me forever just to let go of those and they were never going to be used for anything but anyway right you know yeah. how it is you got cables you're never going to use but you can't let them go so it's i i mean i think musicians are really great at not letting go of things yeah you think yeah <laughs> i won't even show you the desk here so anyway but yeah this is this is the part of the store where i work on instruments and we got some storage back here and uh kind of where i hide out when i um uh, work it on stuff What's well, interesting because, uh, you know, I think a question a lot of people ask is, well, what do artists do when they're not on the road? Right. Um, and and some people paint houses, some people teach music lessons, produce records for other artists. Um, you run a music store, you own and operate a music store um, in Colorado. Yeah, and you know, for me, and maybe my dad drilled this into my head from an early age always have some kind of a day gig, you know, mm. which you don't have to be told that if you got bills coming to you go get a day gig. But about 25 years ago, when I was still living in Little Rock, Arkansas, I looked around my house and I had, I don't know, I'd collected a lot of guitars and, and I was a drummer growing up, but I've always played guitar as well. And um, that, you know, 40 guitars and some were cheap lap steels and some were pretty interesting old Gretsch pieces and some Martins and some Gibsons. But and I was sort of between one thing and the other in, in, in terms of looking for direction. And I thought, what if you could have a job where you could hang around with these guitars all day? So um, it hasn't been as lucrative as um, some things a person could do because there are ups and downs of the retail market and recession and all that sort of thing. But um, on a bad day, I'm surrounded by guitars. So, you know. And it's called Stars Guitars, S-T-A-R-R, -R, you know, of course. Um, how long have you had the shop? Uh, I guess I opened in March of 98 in, in March of 98 in uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, and then moved out here to Colorado, this little town in 2001. So we're, you know, seems like it's, it's been a quarter century just about. So what yeah. caused the move? Um, I, I had leased space for the store and really didn't know what I was doing in a lot of ways. Um, but I think anyone that just dives into retail is in that boat. Um, did okay and sort of created what at the time became a boutique store when I didn't even know what that was. I ended up, I ended up, for instance, 
um, there were other stores in Little Rock that had Martin Taylor and and Gibson and Fender and all the brands that you want in a in a music store, right? So I couldn't get those because they were taken. So I ended up I ended up carrying some lines nobody else was carrying, and by virtue of that, it became sort of a quirky boutique sort of store. Uh, what, that kind store of, what kind of companies or what kind of brands? Well, uh, for instance. Um, uh, it's, I was, I was not off base, you know, Huss and Dalton callings, um, yeah. some other, some other Santa Cruz, some really nice acoustic stuff. Um, uh, some nice import, uh, electrics and whatnot. Um, and as time went on, I proved that I could kind of pull this thing off and I wound up with a Martin dealership and a Taylor dealership and, and all that. But at the end of my three year lease, um, the guy that owned my building wanted to double my rent and I had bought property back out here in Colorado. I'd lived in Aspen in the early eighties and always vowed to get back out in the mountains, you know, in the West. And this guy wanted to double my rent and I went, well, there's your sign right there from the universe. It's time to go West. So I came out here to a little town called Cedar edge, Colorado, which not a very big town. It's in a beautiful spot. It's about 40 miles North of Montrose. Right. Uh, about 50 miles to the east southeast of uh, Grand Junction. We're four and a half hours from Denver. So, not a big population center, but if you go out and stretch a string 100 miles out, you can gather up quite a few people. And the idea would be that I would just have this kind of unique guitar shop in the middle of nowhere and that people would find it. And that's kind of proven proven to be the case. You know, people come in and go, Well, I've heard about this place. I had to come see about it, you know. So, and and as I said, on a bad day, I'm surrounded by guitars, and the view out here is amazing. So, how many people are in Cedar Edge? Well, in town, only about twenty five hundred, maybe. Uh-huh. But in the valley we're in, there may be another four or five thousand, and then there's a town about twenty miles away with ten thousand, and then another twenty miles away with twenty thousand. So, and I've kind of outlasted a lot of the other uh, small mom and pop stores out here. So that Grand Junction has a, a, a long-time established store, um, and me, and that's it on this western side of the uh, of the uh, you know the mountain range. Uh, I hear they're going to put a guitar center in Grand Junction, which is fine. I don't care. You know, still yeah. I still got a I still got something more unique than that. I think so. Oh, a- absolutely. I mean, it's it's still where the where the players want to go is to the you know to the to the small shops. Um, yeah. And for people that are listening that have no idea geographically where we're talking about, you've probably heard of Telluride. Yeah. Um, and it, it's not in Telluride's backyard or anything, but Telluride is maybe another hour from Montrose. Correct. Um, so, and it's for, as you mentioned, it's about four and a half hours from Denver. Um, so you kind of, uh, you have a monopoly in some, in some ways too, right? Everybody in the Valley who wants a guitar, uh, it comes through you. Well, and, and, in a sense, but I, the way I like to think of it is that that there's value in, you know, I've been playing music since I was 13 years old or, well, play, I've been first gig in thir- when I was 13. So somebody can come in with a PA question or a mixer question or, a, you know, a question about an old guitar. I'm actually old enough and have done it long enough to know a little about it. So there's some institutional knowledge here that yeah. that you sometimes don't get in a, in a chain store because they're hiring younger kids and you got to learn sometime. But, um, I was around, I was around when we all thought tube amps were dead and now that's all anybody wants. Right. So 
you know, yeah. this stuff comes and goes, but I think there's something to be said for an institutional knowledge. And I've got a great manager that looks after the store when I'm out gigging on the road. And so I'm very, very fortunate. And it seems one more question on the store. Cause I, it, it's fascinating to me. Um, You'd think it'd be easier to just teach guitar lessons or something. I mean, you have to learn all the ins and outs of retail. you got to worry about, um, I, I don't know what taxes look like for a small business, if, yeah. you know, if you have a storefront. Um, what made you specifically say, hey, that's what I'm going to do for, for my day gig? Um, part of it, well, first of all, I'm not, I'm not a good enough guitar player to teach or I don't feel that I am. I don't. I don't have any formal training and everything I've learned, I'm still learning, you know, I've learned by playing with good players, um, stolen really. Um, but I, I think, I think just having a place to be every day is helpful. You know, I think, um, you know, I don't, I don't do all that well when I don't have anywhere to go or anything to do. I'm not good at just chilling out and sitting around Yeah. and the teaching thing. Um, you know, we had, we had lessons here for years now, during COVID, that all changed, and the, the instructor that we use um, just teaches on Skype from his home about 20 miles from here, and it works great, you know, and that's that's the way a lot of people do things now. But I don't know. I feel like, for me, just my temperament needed to be around, um, needed to have a, an anchor, you know. So it would be too easy for me to go, well, I don't want to teach anymore. I can just wander off and do nothing. Well, here, this is it, this place holds me accountable, I guess, in a way. When did you first, I mean, did you have, did you grow up in a musical household? I know you said you were playing drums and always had guitars around too. Um, musical household, uh, only to the extent that my older brother started playing. Uh, he's three years older and he began to take lessons when he was, I don't know, 11, maybe 12 at a local guitar store. And by the time he was 14, he was teaching. He, he, I mean, he picked it up, uh, learned the you know had the Mel Bay method and he learned that book front to back and learned how to teach so as soon as right. i saw him doing what looked like a pretty cool thing and like everybody else i saw the beatles on tv and i went well that's what i want to do i want to they're having fun yeah so so um didn't feel compelled to play the guitar so much since he was doing that so i took drum lessons for six months and then declared that i knew enough at age uh, 10 and uh, or 12 whatever 11 and uh, but but I just sat in my room and played along with Stones records and Dave Clark Five records and Beatle records and you know so I consider myself a competent drummer um, you know when I go into the studio in Nashville with somebody like Greg Morrow or Tommy Harden or one of those guys and they're they're a walking click track um, you know I, I know where my skills are and where they aren't but uh, my as far as a household no we didn't have a bunch of that in the household just my older brother. And what, I mean, what, when did you start putting out and writing your own music? Um, well, I tried to write my own music pretty early on, like a lot of kids, but I, I don't know where any of that went, and you wouldn't be able to hear it if I could find it because it would be uh, relegated to the trash heap because it wasn't good. But um, really early on in our home, my parents gave in to the fact that we were both going to have bands, and so they... They, when they added on to the house at some point, they put a room above a, of a garage-sized building. Um, they put a room above it for my brother to move into because the house, the family had gotten a little bigger. 
And that room downstairs, we could house all our gear in and we could practice in. So he had a band that practiced there. I had a band that practiced there and we had to juggle that. And he was gigging a lot too, uh, by the time he was in junior high and high school. So, um, we always, but we always had some recording equipment. And at the time, back then, he bought a really nice, big, semi-pro Sony four-track machine with 10-inch reels, 15 inches per second. And when he wasn't using that, I learned to play drums, just thinking a song in my head, just, just writing it as I went on one track with a couple of mics. And then I'd go back and I'd put a guitar track and a bass track and I'd bounce all that to the fourth track. Then I'd go back. So I learned to do that really early, you know, 14 or 15 years old. And probably some of that's better than I remember it because it, it you know, I played it for people and they go, well, that, that actually sounds good, you know. So um, I've always been interested in that aspect of it. So I was writing in through there, but the songs probably weren't very good. But so you had an aptitude for actually doing the audio aspect of it as well. Yeah, I like the I like that that part of it. And sometimes when I'm, you know, I have a home studio now, a pretty nice little home studio, but my home in a separate small building and I get torn sometimes because I really wish I had, you know, and and I could, I could take a day off a week and spend up there in the studio. But uh I end up messing with the gear instead of making music, you know. It's, it's well, if I plug this in here, what does this do and you know, deep dive into the software, and before you know it, you've wasted three hours and you haven't made any music. So, right, right. It's, but gosh, I I just love the stuff. I love the music. I love the the gear, and I love the process. When you record your stuff, now I mean, in the last say ten years, yeah. Um, I know you you go to Nashville and do a lot of stuff uh, mm-hmm. with some pretty serious players. What percentage of stuff are you? flying down to Nashville and doing recordings and what percentage are you uh, using your home studio or are you just using your home studio for demos? Mostly to do the demo stuff but um, you know if, if we get something sort of done in Nashville and I don't really know uh, what I you know if there's something left out there that let's say whether well, it needs a guitar part but we don't know what I'll flesh that out in my studio and sometimes just fly those tracks down to you know to, to put them in the mix but uh and I've done, you know, I've written some stuff here that, um, like there was a, on the Touchstones album um, that I did during the pandemic. It's a, all cover songs except for one. And on that cover song, or on that one original rather, um, the only thing that survived my demo was my guitar solo. Everything else got done at two or three different places in Nashville. So, you know, that it, it gets done that way now. So stuff's flying all over the place as we speak. So you'll take the, you'll have the work tape. And, and take it down and just kind of replace things from the demo. Sometimes, one yeah, by one. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And and I I gotta say I'm pretty spoiled working in Nashville and in, in a nice studio because um, there's something there's something that takes your mind away from the creative process in a way when you're pushing the buttons and fighting with the software and as much as I love all of it, you know, there's something to be said for closing your eyes and singing and not having to watch that meter, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I like it all. I wish I could do it all, you know. I guess I am doing it all. Right, bit. yeah, you are You are doing it all. You came up, uh, you know, as you mentioned earlier, watching the Beatles and decided, hey, I want to do that. So you were getting started when vinyl was cool the first time. Yep. Um, so you've you've seen all the change in trends uh, over the last few decades, and I don't know if there's been any bigger 
change in trend than the last few years um, with streaming and I mean it was I, I thought it was crazy enough right we went from CDs to mp3s and downloading that way and illegal downloading before right. that but now we're streaming things uh, we want seven second 15 second clips um, constantly from from artists in uh, a lot of people uh, say bah humbug and I'm and I'm gonna do it my way I'm gonna do it the old way you I I feel like have done a, a good job of adapting um, to to the changing industry and talking about touchstones you put out a single there's there's 12 songs on the album and you put out a single every month right. and 11 of those 12 songs uh, are covers the um, there's uh, Cabo San Lucas is the original on there right um, but the rest are covers and you put one out every month and you did a very unique take on the cover you did it in your way um, but I thought that was kind of neat and I was seeing it as they were coming out um, I was like oh he's he's playing ball he's doing it the way that uh, the industry wants you to release music right now well I mean here's how how I kind of look at it when I was when I was in my early 20s and had a few original songs that I thought might be good like a lot of guys that age and that at that moment in time we'd have given anything to get a record deal but right. record deals they were few and far between and plus I wasn't in a place where you could go knocking on doors in, in that way and had a young family and all that so to me where we are now is um, is very democratic in a way with a small d in that the good news is anybody can make a record the bad news is anybody can make a record so yeah. there are some records that get made that you know not my cup of tea and maybe the quality isn't great on some of them but um i've just decided that that i'm gonna i'm gonna create i was given some advice many many years ago a friend of mine earl kate from the kate brothers who, who was a band that we all looked up to growing up in my hometown of fayetteville arkansas he said write stuff you wouldn't that you feel like you'd be happy playing 10 years from now well you never know but there are there are songs out there right now that are in the top top 10 on the country charts that some of these guys aren't going to want to sing 15 or 20 years from now sure maybe maybe, maybe six they are. months from now I don't... Yeah, maybe and that's it's not a it's, it's not for me to judge i don't you know i'm not buying their records but i guess my my point is that i see it the the world opened up to me when when you could record an album on a laptop or when you could call disc makers and get stuff made and yeah, it still costs money, but it's not like, you know, having to do a Fleetwood Mac record with a big record label. So I, the only thing I probably won't do is just write crap on purpose just to get on the radio. I just, I can't do it. I try yeah. to do stuff. You know, you mentioned that touchstones record that I just thought during the pandemic, I thought, I don't know what to do. A lot of us didn't know what to do. It was a very strange moment in time. And, I didn't feel like writing much, so I thought, well, I've always played other people's music in cover bands. I did play in dance bands and bars five, six nights a week when I was growing up in high school and college. Play some of those songs. If there's also some songs you never got around to doing, let's do some of those. So we just went in and did them that way, and it, it was a lot of fun. Um, I've probably gotten more interest out of that record than anything I've done. Um, the, the, the album that right before that, The Beauty and Ruin Project, which... 
was based on my grandfather's book that John Oates worked with me on. Um, you know, one of the reasons John liked that idea was because it wasn't just another, let's make a record for record's sake. Let's, it, it had a, it had a, a sort of an arc to it. There was a book involved. There was a storyline. There was all this, these other songwriters. So, you know, do stuff with, with some kind of backbone to it, I guess, you know, uh, go some, be going somewhere with it, I guess, have a direction, I guess is my, and I, I and I don't, I don't have any magic bullet for any of this, but I sure enjoy doing it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great reason to, to do things if you can. Um, you're, I, I like what you said about the good news and the bad news is, is anyone well, can do it. And I don't have any fact checking to back this up by the way, but the, the statistic I keep hearing from people regurgitated over and over again is that a hundred thousand songs get released daily on Spotify which which is an incredible number and yeah. you it, it seems overwhelming but you also have to assume that a whole lot of them for the reason you just mentioned are are crap um yeah. it do you think it's easier to break through the noise now or more difficult than say 30 years ago well that's interesting because you know when i was a kid we we'd wait 6 months or a year or 2 years for the next record to come out by the, by Steely Dan or whoever it was. And there was this big press buildup and there was all this stuff, you know, and then everybody would run out and buy it at the last minute as soon as it came out. And, and, and now stuff comes out just like turning on a tap. It's just there all the time. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know what you do to break through, to get noticed, you know, and I've had this discussion with Oates. He said, I mean, those were his words. I don't know what you do now. You know, he said, because he and Daryl Hall were certainly around for the golden era, you know they um, they were making records and videos when VH1 came along, and silly as some of that stuff was, sold records, and it's yeah, it puts them it it put them in a place in history that that's just hard to get to now because of the sheer volume and um, you know amplitude of stuff. But I I don't know. I think I think getting back to what I said before about just being true to yourself and making good music, you know, making music that you'd feel good about, you know, there's no, there's nothing I've done in the last 20 years of making these albums that I'm ashamed of. There's some songs I've redone because the early recordings were homemade and they weren't great, you know, but that's the beauty of it. You can go back in and recut it with different guys and get a little better result or a different result. As a quick uh, as a quick pitch for Touchstones, which is the most recent full length effort, it came out December first, twenty twenty one, and there's there's the original on there, Cabo San Lucas. There's also uh, for listeners some some really great adaptations of classic songs. Got to serve somebody these days. Angel from Montgomery, Statesboro Blues, Feels Like Rain. Those are a few of my favorites. So I just wanted to uh, make mention real quick um, before that. Uh, you, you you mentioned this collaboration, um, well, I guess with your grandfather and with uh, yeah. John Oates. So your grandfather wrote this book, uh, Fred Starr, mm-hmm. um, called Of What Was, Nothing Is Left. Right. And the album that you put out um, follows, the, you know, a little bit. It's What is it? Everything's inspired by the book somehow? Well, yeah, the idea was I read the book and I hadn't read it when I was young. He died and it came out in 72 and then he died the next year suddenly. And he'd written books prior to that 
um, kind of a lot of nonfiction folklore sort of tales from the hills kind of Ozarky stuff. And I thought it was kind of hokey. And I didn't, you know, he and I were good buddies and he taught me to ride horses and do a lot. We had a lot of fun together, but I didn't read his books because I was too busy being a kid, you know, playing drums and all that stuff. So when I finally read it about eight or nine years ago, I thought, man, the, the, the landscape of this place where these people lived, the decisions people made that took them off a path that, that ruined some people's lives. And if they turn this way instead of that way, you know, it's just, it was a very human story. And then there's kind of a whodunit component as well. Yeah. Um, and I, so I read that and I thought, you know, there are songs in there. And so one night, um, John Oates and his wife and my wife and I all went out to dinner together. It was my birthday. And he said, let's go out to, uh, took me out to eat. It was very nice. And I gave him that book on my birthday, an old, old tattered copy. And he said, what's this? And I said, read that and you tell me if there's songs in there. So he called me in two days, which is pretty quick, you know, and I said, what do you think? And he said, what do you want to do? And I, my idea was let's give this book to about half a dozen songwriters and have everybody write songs. And he stopped me short and he said, and then do a concept album based on that. And I went, there you go. So we didn't try to retell the story. Um, but a good example is Irene Kelly wrote for it. Irene was taken by, by a situation in the book where two women um, took their own lives due to, due to, due to grief at having lost a child. Um, so that song, that, that idea took, took hold with her, and that's the song we wrote. Uh, John said, I'll do this project, but I get Jubilee, which is a town in the book. He said, that's mine. I said, okay. So everybody picked something that resonated with them, and, uh, and that's how it happened. So uh, it was a really cool project. The only downside to any of it was we had a uh, CD release party on the 4th of March, and that weekend the entire world shut down in 2020. So we were, we were in Barnes & Noble stores. We were in vinyl stores, uh, we, you know, the whole thing. We had a real push, and it just kind of collapsed for several months, and it never really came back. So in 2023, I'm going to, I'm going to do a little a push to bring all that back to the surface again, but that's, you know, for down the road. Right. So. Right. And how did you end up in Barnes and Noble stores? I mean, that's a pretty, well, I have a, I use a, 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 I work with a management team out of Nashville and one of them is a distribution guy. And he said, I can get this worked out, you know, and, and, uh, it wasn't like we were going to have a hundred books in each store, but we'd have a couple of books, a couple of CDs and a couple of vinyl uh, in a bunch of different markets, like some on end caps and all kinds of stuff. And I thought, well, this is cool. And then and everything stopped. And everything stopped suddenly. Yeah. yeah. And were you packaging these together? Hey, get the book and the CD. Well, there was a way to do that. There was like, maybe you save five bucks if you buy them all. I forget what the deal was, but there was a, a bit of a marketing push and we really put some, uh, you know, muscle behind it. And of all the projects to, to have it happen to, that was pretty disappointing, but yeah. I try to put it in perspective. You know, the pandemic was a lot worse for a lot of people than it was for me and my little record, you know, so, and the record lives on and I've got plenty of them. So yeah, <laughs> still got boxes. So, uh, and, and, you know, I sell them at gigs and, and people like it. And it, uh, it, the whole, the whole saga and the whole story and the whole connection to my grandfather is really dear to me. So, um, you know, it's not going anywhere. It just took a little detour. What do you think he would think if uh, if he could listen to the record? 
Well, I think he, I, I don't know about the record part because he thought, you know, rock and roll was probably not uh, healthy for young people, but that was the case with a lot of people who were that age at the time. But I think he would be um, very pleased that I dug into it, saw in it what he was trying to, what he was trying to, the story he was trying to tell. And, and the thing I always think about, you know, he died when he was 77 and he used to sell these books. He'd go to like, uh, let's say there was a, a, um, a fall festival of some sort. Um, he would, he would take a card table and he would set it up and he would have a box of these books and he would sit there and sign autographs and talk to people. He, he also had a newspaper column. So people in the Northwest Arkansas area knew him somewhat. Um, and he was an educator and did a lot of things, but he just sold them, you know, you know, guerrilla retail, you know, out there with the people. And it's no different than the way we sell CDs off the edge of a stage during our break. You know, it's like, Hey, you know, we're going to take a 15 minute break and you can buy a CD over here at this table. Yeah. And one day it just struck me, I'm doing what he was doing and you know, he was 77 and doing it. So you look at all these people who are, in their 80s still playing music and uh so it's it's pushing that creative envelope which i think he'd be pleased about one song that i really enjoyed on the record is bury the young which yeah. is it's a it's a very sad song about um you know having to bury a child yeah um, well for... and my my grandparents lost um lost a couple of children very early on uh, one one lived about a year and one was probably not was probably stillborn. I don't know a lot about those, but uh, so there's that that grief aspect in the book. And Doug and Talisha Williams wrote that song, by the way. That that's a beautiful okay. song. It, how did you first get linked up with uh, John Oates? Uh, John, well, first of all, Cedar Edge is about mm, ninety five miles from Aspen as the crow flies out here, but it's a couple hours in by a car on a good day, two and a half hours. Um, I had lived there in the early 80s, knew a lot of people, then moved away. And then somewhere in there, John moved in that area. And he had a, a group of guys that he used as his, uh, at his, as his solo band when he was out doing stuff without Daryl Hall, doing his solo stuff. So they were friends of mine. I was friends of theirs. They were customers here in the shop. And they suggested, hey, get, get John to come over and do a little show in your little town because I produce shows here as well. Um, and we did that. And one thing led to another and we did some more shows and a couple of shows with with the full band and then one day john said let's do something just the two of us went, oh okay you know yeah. so we've done a few of those and i i sort of bugged him to write with me and we wrote a song for one of my records and then i've just become become friends and uh he's he's an extremely generous person with his time um he's a wealth of knowledge just you know, you got somebody that sold that many records and made those 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 important contributions to pop music. You, you know, if you can write with those people and work with them, you, you do yourself a favor. And he he is very immersed in the Americana world, but he has got a great um, knack for putting a pop spin on stuff and make just just well, enough yeah. to make you want to listen a little harder. You know, and so um, good example he. The first day we recorded together, I sang all day long while the band was tracking. And he said, you're not tired? And I said, no, man, I'm just, I'm jazzed. You know, let's keep going. So we got through, we had dinner and the guys went home and he said, you want to work on vocals tonight? And I said, let's do it. 
So we go back in to redo all the vocals. Very last, very last take on a song. I came out of the booth. It's nine o'clock at night. It's just John and the engineer and I. He said, I said, man, I think that was it. He said, you do, huh? And I kind of laughed. And I said, well, yeah, don't you? And he said, let me ask you something. He said, uh, sounds good. He said, and I, that was fourth take of that song. We were, you know, get, building tracks to comp. He said, what were you thinking when you wrote that song? I said, well, I was pissed off. And he said, yeah. He said, go back in there and do one more. Yeah. So he planted that seed, and I went in there with just a little more grit. And well, that's the one we used, you know. So he he's always made me sing better. And so anytime I can get him in the, in the you know, in there when I'm, when I'm doing vocals, I'll, I'll, man, I'll welcome that. Is that maybe, you know, if, if you can say you've learned something from him, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, that you've learned lots from each other, but is that maybe a key component of, I, I mean, when he's not there now, do you know to go do that fifth take? He's right here. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah okay. And it's, it's one of those things of, let's say you've, let's say you've got a chorus that repeats three times in a, in a song, maybe the third time, instead of going here with a note, you throw this in there, right? You go high and, and give it a little extra push. And that's the thing that's going to make the, the person perk up just for a split second and go, Oh yeah, I like that. You know? Mm. And it's that, you know, it's so easy to say, okay, well, I, I mean, especially now when you can cut and paste vocals and move things around. Yeah, I did that. Let's just paste that in three places. No, do it three times and make the last one the best, you know, something like mm. that. So, and I don't know if he did that intentionally, but that's what I've gotten from it. And that's, you know, it stuck with me. How do you manage touring and supporting these releases when you've got a, a shop back home that you have to think about as well? I have a really good manager that that's here and looks after things that I trust implicitly and she does a great job and treats it like it's hers. Um, and I'm never gone for more than about 10 days or two weeks that, and that's, you know, that works out. Okay. It's probably nice to have me out of here, you know, but, um, I, I'll, I'll, I'll manage that or try to schedule that in such a way that, um, you know, like I go to England and Scotland every year in, in the month of May or I have for several years. And, you know, we know that's coming. So we know a week ahead of time before I leave, don't take any repairs in, just tell people it's going to be gone for a couple of weeks, put your own strings on whatever, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it, and, and of course with, with the internet and iPhones and everything else, it's, you know, I can go online and look at, look at my store every day, my online shop. I can go on and look at the, the accounts I can, it's, uh, it's easier than it would have been 10 years ago or 20 years ago for, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you're going, you're going overseas are, uh, you're playing shows and, and just returning to those same venues every year. I mean, are you starting to build something up there? Um, I, I do. There's some that I try to do every year because I love them so much and I've got a good, uh, a kind of a good following at some of them. Uh, and of course, new people show up each time. And then, uh, and then each time we try to add a couple of new dates and maybe one that didn't go so well last time or, or they can't do it this time or whatever. I could probably go for three weeks and fill almost every single night. Um, my wife would love it if I'd take a night off while we're over there so we could actually like rest or go to dinner or something. But I've sort of inclined when I go over there to really hit it hard for a couple of weeks and play 13 out of 14 nights that were there and then come home and, 
you know, get back to it. But uh, I love it over there. I've, I've been very fortunate to meet some good players and meet some really nice fans. How did that first happen, um, doing that? There, there was, there's a couple from Canada that I know that um, had been going over there, and I just asked them, I said, could I – how do you get that done? How do you book stuff over there? You know, I, and I was new at doing a solo act. I was always in a band till about 11, 12 years ago and just decided to go out and try to do some stuff on my own. And they said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you meet us over there? We're over there for a month, meet us, kind of follow us to gigs for a couple of weeks. Um, maybe open for us a little bit, play along with us. And you meet some people and that they were very generous with their time and that helped. And, uh, from there I just took it and said, Hey, if you like what I just did, can I come back and see you next year? And they go, yeah. So worked out fine. Wow. It's, Does it feel like a, a home away from home a little bit? Yeah, it really is. And I could live in Scotland. No problem. I love it over there. Yeah. Yeah. What is your team like at this point? I and mean, you've got management. I mean, how much, and you're an independent artist at the same time. How yeah. much, how much help do you have with different facets of your industry? Well, I've got, I've got a management uh, the Holland group in Nashville does some management work with me. And then, uh, I've got a, I've got a PR team in Nashville as well. I don't have a booking agent. I do my own booking. And, uh, some days I think, well, it'd be great to have somebody just hand me a roster and say, go, you know, schedule and go do these gigs. And then other days I think, no, I just, I'm doing fine. I played 60 times in 2022, um, and ran a retail business and went back home to see my mom who's 90 years old and, you know, so maybe that's, maybe that's enough and, uh, maybe it works out fine. So one of the gigs you did this year was you played at Americana Fest, correct? I did. I did a couple of, a couple of showcases there. How was that? It was good. I, I, I love Americana Fest. Sometimes I think there's so much going on that it's hard to get a group of people to come, you know, it's hard to fill a room for any one artist unless you're a, a bigger act. But yeah. the ones that came to see me, um, there were some people there who had done their research and, you know, asked really intelligent questions and seemed to, to know what I was about, which that's what you want, you know, people that matter, or for whom it matters, rather. Are there any specific venues or even markets that you would love to get into that you haven't yet? Um, you know, I haven't played up in the Northeast much, and I haven't played in the Northwest much. Um, so... You know, maybe more regional stuff, perhaps. Um, but, um, you know, it, it's funny, in 2022, almost everything that came my way as far as a gig came my way. And I didn't feel like I had to do a lot to get them. So I kind of said yes to all of it, and they all turned out pretty good. I had a really good year. But uh, you never know when you're doing it yourself unless you just spend hours a day doing it, working right. on it. And that's and Booking is tedious. But you know that. It is. It is. It is. Yeah. It's, it's an exercise in, uh, in rejection. <laughs> you know what? I've learned to appreciate the rejection. What ah. gets frustrating is no response. Yeah. I, 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 if somebody says no, maybe next year, man, I can run with that. But if somebody just never responds, you know, it, what do you do? You just go on. So I guess that is rejection. It's just harsher. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the Grand Mesa Arts Center is yes. something that you have some involvement with, and I know you've put on some shows over there as well. Um, what is your involvement? Well, it's uh, the Grand Mesa Arts and Events Center Inc. is a five hundred one c nonprofit, five hundred one c three nonprofit 
that uh, my wife and I were instrumental in getting that going five years ago. And essentially, we felt like this little town needed a hub for the arts. So we took an old building, uh, us and another group of, uh, and a group of people that in this, you know, put a board together and raised money, leased this building, put quite a bit of money into remodeling it. And half, the idea was half of this old building it was built in 1906, I think. Half of the building is, is basically visual arts. There's a, an art gallery and some teaching space uh, and office space in a green room. And then the other half is a, is a big um, room with a stage. And it doesn't have fixed seating because during the week we use it for yoga and dance and art classes and stuff. But when we do a show, we can get 160, 170 seats in there and folding chairs. And so John Oates has played several times, Carla Bonoff, um, John McEwen from the, you know, used to be in the Dirt Band. He's come several times. Hmm. And then a lot of folks um, who are just your touring singer songwriter types like us, you know, and they, Dana Cooper, um, you know, he, he's a regular, he's coming, um, you know, uh, Jackson, people like that, Jackson Emmer. So we, we, we try to, we try to do a mix of, uh, and we do theater, you know, some community theater and that kind of thing. But anyway, it's, it was the it envisioned as a place for the arts to, to have a home here in town. And it's really, I think changed, changed the way the town sees itself. You know, you, people see what's possible once you set it, put in front of them. You did a kind of a regional tour, and I believe uh, that was one of the venues that you did um, just a couple months ago with Jackson Emmer and Susan Gibson. That was kind of a writer's round. Well, we haven't done this. We haven't done the arts, our arts okay, center okay. yet. That's on the books for hopefully this year. But we went to an arts center over in Basalt, which is near Aspen, and then up in Estes Park. Um, we, we, we met up there and did a, a writer's round. That was a lot of fun. So I, yeah, I do hope to get them here in 2023 to do that. And, and Susan Gibson, um, wrote wide open spaces for, for the Dixie Chicks. Right. Uh, or, well, it, it was cut by the Dixie Chicks, as you mentioned right. earlier. Jackson Emmer is a great songwriter. Yes, he is. Um, writes with Tom Paxton weekly, I believe. Yeah. And I think he put out 22 singles this year or something. That was um, a lot. He's a, he's a, yeah. he's an interesting guy because he's. Um, he, he picked, he picked a plan and just ran with it, you know? So 22 singles is a lot of singles, you know, but that's, you have to, I think now, just like with touchstones, here's the funny thing about my t touchstones project. I thought if I do a cover album and just release everything online, this will be cheap, right? Mm -hmm. I don't have to spend a bunch of money. I had to pay for licensing on all the publishing on all the songs. Mm. Then I thought, well, a video with each song would be nice. So I did that. And then I had to pay to release them and on and on and on. And then I ended up pressing a CD of the thing. It went from being my least expensive project to my most expensive project, but it was very rewarding. Yeah. So, but I like what Jackson did, you know, just, just pick a plan and go with it, you know, and he'll, when he's talking to somebody in an interview like this at some point somebody say you're the guy that did 22 and 22 yep that's me so you know it's a hook you gotta have a something that separates you from the pack i guess yeah yeah absolutely and what was it about those two i mean what how did that come about that the three of you did a, did a writer's round well jackson together? jackson asked me and i was flattered to be asked because i think they're both good writers and i um I just thought it'd be fun, you know, so, so I was grateful to be involved in it. And we had a really good time. 
What's fun about that particular round or that setup with those three people, those uh, us three artists, we all write different stuff. It's very, very different. And uh, everybody has a different approach to the storytelling aspect of it. And audiences seem to really like it, you know. Um, so, you know, Susan would do something kind of funny. And I think, well, I should probably do something kind of funny, but I don't have anything really funny. So I'll tell a funny story, then do one of my dark songs. Yeah. You know, then Jackson would whip around with something about something that, that none of us had even thought of, you know. So yeah. it's, it, you never know in those situations how that's going to work. But in that instance, I thought it worked really well. Yeah. You just put out a single. Any chance of going home came out on yeah. December second. Um, talk about that track a little bit. Well, that one was an interesting exercise in storytelling because I was down here at my shop one morning about six thirty. I come down from my house. I live up, up up on the side of the mountain a bit. Came down into town to go have coffee with some guys I meet up with in the morning and have coffee. And I came in the store, and I, as I walked in, I noticed. There was an old man sitting on a bench out in front of my store and it was barely just light, you know, and he was, he was nursing this cigarette, you know, and I thought, I don't even know who that guy is. I've never seen him. And by the way, I've never seen him since. So I don't know who he was, but he, the, the opening line of that song is about how he was breaking the filter off this cigarette and doing something with it. I, you know, and I thought, I wonder who that guy is. And then I, my little internal voice said, well, it doesn't matter, write his story, you know? And so I took, I took that opening line, you know, he twisted that brown filter off the cigarette and I thought, I'll just take it from there and, and make that, you know, give that guy a storyline. And yeah, there were some pieces and parts that I had written down from other would be songs, but that's kind of how it came to be. And then uh, sometime as we're speaking, there's a, a video that will come out for that song that was put together by my friend, Jason Denton. Uh, from Nashville and that'll this this I believe I don't I don't have the schedule on the top of my head will be out the first or second week of January so if you're listening the video will be out by then sure there'll be a video for David Star Music on YouTube so well and there's there you got lots of great videos on YouTube I you know I you take the time to make videos for a lot of your songs as you said you did it for all the everything on touchstones but so there's a lot to watch on your YouTube channel for our listeners well you know as we were talking about before we went went live here it's content and stuff for people to to dig into and and this this new video i think when people see it 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 actually i've had i played it for a couple of people and they were they were touched by it and so by the time this airs uh, you know it'll be out there and we'll see how it goes but well and it seems obvious from chatting with you but also just seeing you seeing you over the last couple of years and how you release songs that yeah you are doing these things that you need to do in 2022 uh to promote your music but also you don't seem to take yourself too seriously you're doing it because you love it and you want to do it um more than because you really need uh, attention on tiktok or, or whatever it it to me it's about challenging myself more than anything and i um i find you know, first of all, I, I try to keep the excellence, you know, I try to keep excellence in the forefront and don't put out something that isn't ready to put out. And, and you know, don't put, try to make everything count, you know, because people don't remember all the good stuff, but they'll remember something that sucks. They'll, they'll point that out to you every time, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I, I, yeah, I, I take it seriously to the extent that I want to do a good job. 
but I'm also realistic about where this goes for somebody at my age at this point in life. Um, one of the blessings to come out of that project about my grandfather's book is that I know my grandfather better for having done it. And I knew him pretty well, but now I know him even better and I feel more connected. Mm. And when I'm dead and gone, my grandkids, I have three grandsons. One of them goes, well, I wonder, you know, I knew granddad, but, but I can listen to these songs and, and read his lyrics and go, okay, I think I know him a little better. So there's, there's a lot of value in that, I think. What's the plan for 2023? Um, going to play live because I really, really enjoy that. You know, I hate the booking, but I sure love playing, you know? Yeah. So I'm going to do that. Um, working on going back to the UK. So that's, that's partially done. Um, and I'm working right now with my friend Mark Prentice from Nashville. We're working on a, an album that I won't call it a blues album, but it's pretty heavily influenced by the blues. I, I grew up playing Almond Brothers tunes and, and, uh, you know, Clapton covers and, the more bluesy stuff, you know, and I really, I really like that stuff and I sing it reasonably well, I think. And so one day I said to him, why don't we, well, what kind of got us started was on the Touchstones album. There's a, a quick cover of uh, Statesboro Blues. And then we did, I've got to use my imagination, the old Gladys Knight hit. And that song got more, that particular song got more airplay than anything I, that I did in 2022. So yeah. And it was on a blues playlist. So I thought, you know, let's let's lean that direction a little bit. So we're going to do about nine or ten of those kinds of tunes and put them out there sometime in the in the year. And I don't know if that's my management folks have got an idea to maybe do something a little bigger with that than than I'd been thinking. But I, I, we got to talk about that. The trouble, well, the trouble, as you know, when you're a solo artist and you go in and make these big sounding records, then you go out and play by yourself. It's like, now what? You know? Yeah, yeah. It'd be great if you could tour. Be great if you could tour with a five-piece band, but that is not very um, practical. So, but yeah, we'll see. I've, I've been valuing the local shows I've been able to do with my five-piece band because it's so much fun to, whether it be get the album sound or just the energy of other musicians on stage. Yeah, and people just you know you know I've done a few shows in Nashville and. Did some stuff where Oates could play with us, and then, you know, I've got, like I said, Mark Prentice and his family, all good musicians, and been able to reproduce the albums fairly well. And and uh, so we'll we'll do some things in Nashville and in the that region probably, um, but you know, we'll see what happens. We just keep making music. Yeah, absolutely, keep making music. Well, if you don't mind, stay on the line with me for just one second. But in you front bet. of our audience, I want to say thank you very much for taking the time to chat with me. It's been my pleasure. All right, big thanks again to David Starr. Check out his stuff online, and uh, he's putting out even more in 2023. Once again, if you'd like to help out this podcast in a monetary way, I'm on Patreon. There's a link in the show notes at patreon.com slash Andy Sido, S-Y-D-O-W. And if you'd like to help out in a completely free way, give this podcast a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. It just takes a second, and it really is a huge help. Thanks so much, and I'll chat with you next week. Thank you.